Live export is a difficult subject. Some listeners may find this challenging. I'm Colin Klupik. This is 47 Degrees. As I begin to draw this to some kind of conclusion, I start to wonder what sort of future this trade has, and what kind of discussion is likely to be the most effective. Is it the animal welfare? Local jobs? The economics of the trade itself? Increased environmental regulation? The changing nature and demands of our customers? Or perhaps the largest influencing factor, the court of public opinion? I suspect it's a mix of all of those things. Given Lynn's experiences and the sacrifices she's made to bring these issues to light, she maintains what I'd describe as a fair and reasonable approach as she contemplates the future of the live animal export trade. The trade has hit a a massive speed hump at the moment and it's gone from business as usual for the last 40 years, regardless of people highlighting issues and scientific reviews and um, industrial research and development um, projects being um, worked around it, to a, a big upset where the expose on the Awasi Express that was recently aired on 60 Minutes has has flagged irre- irrevocably that changes need to be made and that what we're, our current business model is not um, compatible with animal welfare that's so, acceptable. Yeah, because it's come up in the media year after year. Well, maybe not year after year, but periodically it's come up in the media. But it seems like the story that aired on 60 Minutes this year was – the line in the sand people really started to take notice yeah yeah this this one really was the game changer and um and there's been there's been a lead up of awareness and had that lead up of awareness not happened over the last 40 years literally from the 80s um it may not have been so powerful but now we've got that groundswell of public interest and awareness so when when this hit the air there was people coming up to me saying I thought we'd fix this trade, you mm. know, because it's been in the press before and mm. we're like, no, no, nothing's changed. So the new minister that we have for agriculture, Minister David Littleproud, he has um, instigated some reviews and one of the – there's two of, of great importance. One of them was a short, sharp review on the science around shipping sheep into hot weather especially and the other was around the culture of the Department of Agriculture. So – what has been found already in a very short period of, what, two and a half months is that the stocking density, how many animals we put into a certain space on these ships, needs to be reduced by a minimum of 30%. So A third, yep. effectively. So a, th- a third less loaded onto these ships. And, um, and some ships that have got poorer designs and poorer ventilation um, flow and distribution their stocking density has been reduced to 12%. 12? Yep. So so some ships should only be carrying 12% of the animals according to this science that they currently carry. Well, it'd be... So it would 88% be, reduction. Well, it would look empty. It would look very empty. I can imagine that the people who are running the numbers on that are thinking, well, what's the point? Exactly. You've got very expensive ships. Everything about shipping is expensive. Um so what's been really interesting is there's been a lot of talk in Parliament and a lot of media about um, these ships and uh, the people that were running the Awasi Express um, have been given show cause notices to, to show cause as to why they should hold a licence still and 
how they're going to operate without causing pain, harm, suffering, stress, etc. And it's ended up being a bit of a legal stoush and, um, and essentially they've had their licences suspended so they can't trade at the moment because they can't show notice as to how they are going to operate in a way that the government finds acceptable. And one thing that was really interesting is the, the parliamentarians were arguing about a phasing out um, phase of the or stage of the live export trade, whether it should the sheep trade, whether it should be phased, you know, immediately three years, five years, ten years, you know, whatever, so that um, farmers aren't um, unduly affected, you know, and they have a chance to transition into a different form, such as chilled meat, mm. and um, and we don't end up with an animal welfare issue where we've got too many animals on shore and not enough processing capacity. Um, with the abattoirs and um, one of the parliamentarians said to me you know I'm not sure what we should do with the the pro with the the phasing period and I said I wouldn't worry now that you've um, now that we've got the scientific review with the stocking de- density reduction I said my understanding of the economics which is which is scant because they don't like to share their numbers mm. um, of profit and what they buy and sell for um, I said that by taking 30% of those animals off the ships, you've essentially banned the trade. You've made it non-economically viable. And it's the trade re- requires a business model that um, requires that high density of animals to be commercially viable. And this person sort of laughed at me thinking I was joking. And then the following week, the second largest exporter from Australia, Livestock Shipping Services, put an announcement in the media saying that um, they won't be taking any more sheep out of Australia during the Northern Hemisphere summer because it's not commercially viable for them. Is that under new regulations or is it... Under current regulations. Under current regulations. Yeah. So under current regulations, the the cracks are starting to appear on viability. Within weeks. And then as as the further reduced stocking density requirements are made effective, well, that's just going to increase that or speed up that process yeah. towards non-viability. And stocking densities have always been something that has been res- changing of stocking densities or reductions of stocking densities has always been resisted vehemently by the trade, which has told me for years that um, by, by watching their resistance that they either are not prepared to cut that profit margin or they can't afford to operate without that profit margin. So what is really interesting is after this politician sort of, you know, had had a good-natured laugh with me saying, oh, no, 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 we're still going to have to have a phasing-out period, then this company said, no, we're not coming back um, because we can't operate under this under this model. So it proves and reiterates that the live export trade business model relies on animal cruelty as just part and parcel of making a profit. Look, I just want to pause on that point. When you say that the business model relies on animal cruelty, is that fair? And and I don't mean to be uh, – I'm not trying to be uh, difficult about this when I ask that question. But, again, for, for people who have no experience of witnessing anything that goes on on, on a ship, again – is is it? Are we talking about mass animal cruelty, or are we suffer, or are we talking about a percentage of animals that that die or suffer worse than others? So it's not that you know they have to tick a box saying the animals will get water, the animals will get food, the animals will be treated cruelly. So it's it's not something that they actively go to do, but by 
putting the animals, especially in the space allocations that they have. So I think it's three forty-five um, kilogram sheep get one square meter to live in on the ship. That is the cruelty. So they have a limited ability to to move around, to to lie down, to rest, to behave in a natural manner. So to lie down in a way that they can sort of stretch out. And you know, I'm not saying they all need pillows and you know doonas and tucked in at night or anything like that. But um, but yeah, they they really need to be crammed in in an uncomfortable, crowded elevator like situation for these businesses to be profitable. So, uh, so it's a passive cruelty and it's, it's indicated by some animals dying, a percentage of animals dying, but a much larger percentage of animals that are actually experiencing pain and suffering and stress. So when the trade considers things like mortality rates in its, in its current form, are we really looking at an industry that says, look, it's all, it's all right if, if X thousand sheep perish on each trip we just think that's okay who decides what mortality rates are okay i'm not sure where those original percentages came from but it's it's interesting that they have been relying on a very blunt indicator of mortality versus another indicator which is harder to quantify called morbidity so morbidity is actually illness and disease and injury so um it's, it's much easier to just count the, the ones that drop dead and don't walk off and versus the ones that um, are unwell and injured and have lost a lot of weight but still manage to stagger off at the, end of, at the end of a voyage and possibly with a subclinical illness that will kill them in the feedlot. Yeah, because as we were talking before, when you're, particularly when you're, when you're looking at, uh, say, a, a storage area where you've got uh, like a, a double layer – of sheep and and you're standing there looking at the at the feed trough but but it goes seven meters back you really can't tell unless you're examining every individual animal thoroughly as to what their current state of morbidity to use that term no you can't and one of the um added complications to that is the more unwell and weak and or um shy an animal is um the further back in the pen that they'll Mm. retreat because it's the strong um uh, boisterous sort of animals that will push their way to the trough to make sure that they're they're first to get their their fill of feed and then whatever's left over the other sheep will get so um so the sick ones usually the fact that you can see though that first meter of the pen is usually not an issue because they're not the sheep you you want to be looking at because mm. they're 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 rarely the ones that are unwell. It's the ones at the back that you can't see that you really need to be concentrating on, and you can't see them. I'm surprised then if if there's been pressure on that industry for 40 years, uh, which has largely gone un I guess well not unchecked but unacted upon. Why is there no incentive for them then to think about? altering their business i mean instead of exporting live animals can't they just say all right well we'll still be in the export business we'll still run ships but we just won't run them live let's just process them here in australia and then we'll export them well interestingly after the 2011 bloody business expose on four corners two of the major live exporters of sheep one of them being livestock shipping services who have said they're not coming back during this stocking density um, period and another one they both went out and bought export abattoirs just outside of perth so they were instantly hedging their bets that the trade was going to fall over 
and stop and that they were going to transition. So they are already operating export abattoirs. So in a way they've diversified their business model so that they've got a part transition already, which would simplify a full transition from their Australian export companies. But it's really important to, to note that ships don't have a, lo- a loyalty to a country. So when Livestock Shipping Services said, we're not coming back to Australia, they've gone straight to South America and Spain. And, um, and they're meeting a lot of resistance over there now because those countries have an awareness campaign and it's growing. And, um, and they're starting to say, we, we don't want you here either. So the local exporters here have essentially just tried to shift the problem. Well, we don't really have local exporters because like, Livestock Shipping Services is run by Jordanians, um, QAD Livestock Trading and Transport, which uses a, a local exporter licence, is run by QAD. Oh, okay. So, but there's, there's obviously there's still a core group of organisations that want to export live animals and they're just try, now trying to find the path of least resistance. But what we're suggesting here is that that, that path of least resistance is starting to starting to close up it's starting to, that those opportunities are starting to dry up well people are starting to see the the backbone of what these businesses actually operate so so clearly with livestock shipping services they're they're proving they don't have a loyalty to australia so australian farmers shouldn't be relying on them because when prices change or fluctuations in um, standards change like now they're going to essentially desert the farmers and you know there there is some more instability with the farming trade. Um, the Kuwaitis are a really interesting model because being the biggest importer of, um, of sheep to a very small country, they've only got 3 million people or something in Kuwait, um, they have, and, and I was aware of this through word of mouth, but they have put in the media themselves that the new stocking densities that um, Australia is requiring, require, requiring for their ships means that they are not getting enough animals into Q8 for their processing businesses. So what they've been doing is they've been buying animals from Australia, sending them on a a stressful and dangerous voyage to Q8. They're using expatriate um, staff in Q8 to, to process, slaughter and process these animals there. And then they're on exporting these cuts of meat as Australian meat to different countries. So they're bypassing our slaughterhouses. These animals are doing an unnecessarily dangerous voyage and stressful experience, and they're still being sold under cellophane in a butcher shop. After everything that's been discussed so far, the fact that this could possibly be boiled down to live exports simply being unnecessary was a striking revelation. Could this now all just come down to the middleman that nobody needs anymore? And here's a question. Who would actually want to eat meat from an animal that's undergone so much stress? Well, couldn't those businesses effectively just turn themselves into wholesalers? As in, they are the, they are the businesses that source the meat from Australia and then on sell. Why, why, why the desire to process locally in Kuwait? I'm not quite sure because we already have a... Um a meat, a, a chilled and frozen meat industry that goes to all these countries that they own export to. So they're just like a giant middleman. Yeah. That nobody really needs. And if, yeah, and in fact, yeah, then no one's reliant on it because they're already getting the product. This is just another source of the product. But the animals have had an unnecessarily horrible voyage. I suspect it's because ships are very expensive, and you know you don't want to 
just scrap a ship before it's hit its use-by date. Um, but one thing that this causes and highlights is that they're importing of sorry they're on exporting of this meat to countries where we're already um, sending chilled product to there's no differentiation on the supermarket shelves as to whether this is a, a product that's had low stress handling in Australia been killed in Australia processed here and sent chilled um, overnight by plane or or frozen by ship to these countries or this is an animal that's had a traumatic experience and we know through meat science which is quite advanced now that um, animals that have experienced an awful lot of trauma before you know just before being slaughtered are a poorer product to eat a less palatable product I was going to ask you about that because you talk about a label of low stress handling how do we how do we know I was going to say is it is it actually really obvious if you were to, if you do it a, a taste test and put down two two cuts of meat, one which was low stressed and one which was high stress, would you be able to taste it? You would be able to taste it. You'd be able to. Um, you should be able to tell by how um, difficult it is to chew. The the, the meat should be tougher in an animal that's um, undergone a lot of stress because of the cortisol before it's been slaughtered. Um, a low-stress animal should have a low cortisol level. And there's a there's a physical thing that you can see, and it's actually called dark cutting. And I think okay, no, that sounds horrible. Talk me through that one. Yeah, it's, it's, well, no, it's not. It's, um, it's just because of the lactic acid buildup in the meat, from what I understand. I'm no meat scientist, but... Um, uh, the meat people will be able to tell you that um, if you get a, a stressed out piece of meat, and you, you like a, you know, you, you can get a dark cut piece of steak, mm-hmm. and you can get a um, a nice pink red piece of steak, and one will indicate a, a low stress experience before hopefully an oblivious death, and the other one will have had a really horrible time, lots of cortisol, lactic acid, and will physically be a darker cut of meat. And in the in the industry, they're called dark cutters. So I'm surprised then that the that the the export companies don't see that as a detriment to their business. I mean, clearly they're going to be exporting, or they're going to be transporting animals that are high stress animals. Surely their customers are going to come to some sort of realization soon that they're that they're actually receiving a second rate product. Well, I suspect they will, and um, and it's certainly something that concerns the meat industry, and it concerns the the vast majority of farmers who actually sell into the export meat trade instead of the export live trade because you're jeopardising a 10 times bigger export trade. So live export is actually not very big. We just hear about it. Uh, yeah, because it well, it, it it's makes, contentious. It makes headlines, that's yeah. right. The, the pictures are bad, the stories are bad. And another interesting thing that's happening at the moment is um, the International Maritime Organisation that we call the IMO is the UN's United Nations shipping wing. They have brought in some new regulations that will um, be applied as of January 1, 2020. And ironically, they're to do, well, not ironically, but for for a vet to be talking about this seems a bit random, but um, it's to do with fuel quality and the component of sulphur. So uh, as of 2020, January 1, um, the fuel that these ships, all ships should be using, should have no more than 5% um, sulphur component for emissions um, regulations. So it's actually an environmental incentive. And it means that the um, older ships that run on really heavy fuel with a high sulphur component either need to have some very expensive conversions done to them or they'll be scrapped. 
they won't be registrable again. No, that's interesting because that makes me think about the conversation I had with Gary Dodd at the Mission to Seafarers up in Newcastle. Um, I asked him about the diminishing crew sizes or the the crew numbers are getting smaller on these ships. Mm -hmm. If we have environmental issues that are making the ships more expensive to run and are placing greater restrictions on how they operate and we have a smaller number of crew, uh, as in smaller crew numbers, the next thing that I got onto with Gary was I, I just said, off the cuff, I said, so do you think we're ever going to get to self-driving ships? Like, you know, we've got self-driving cars, or they're, they're just about here. And he said, oh, absolutely. So you're going to have a ship that has increased um, uh, increased environmental protections on it. You're going to have potentially no crew members on it, uh, at least for a large part of its journey. You, I would imagine that you can't have a ship full of animals with no people on it. No, no. You won't find an automated system to, to look after biological needs. That certainly is something that you would rely on a person to do. Mm. And um, you couldn't even do it remotely via cameras and robots or anything like that. You know, it's just that's just sheep aren't programmed or to, mm. to operate in a predictable manner. So, um, so no, you would always need people for that. But, um, but, yeah, automation is something that's a big topic in maritime news at the moment and it's a concern to a lot of people for, um, for jobs and also for safety, as with the automated cars. Yeah. And, um, and, of course, you know, we might get to a point, I think, where we have very few people on a ship, but I, I, I kind of doubt that you'll get to the point where there's, there's none unless it's just a very routine like ferry short trip or something like that because because of the inherent changes in the sea and, um, you know, the risk of mechanical breakdowns, mm. um, uh, collisions, uh, pollution. So if you have a collision with something and you, you pierce a, a big oil tank or a fuel tank on one of these ships, then you would normally have the people going out and doing something about the oil spill or reporting it. You might not have that with an automated system. So so there's still some um, some bugs to sort of iron out there and see how they're going to do that. But it doesn't bode well, though, because the, the, the indicators at the moment are towards reduction, so emissions, costs, uh, crew, which I would imagine, and this is from a very naive perspective, that you would then look at something like live export where you go, okay, high cost, high maintenance, uh, high stress, high risk, uh, look... It's not worth it. <laughs> why, don't we just, why don't we just make it go away? Yeah, look, I, I think the live export trade is going to um, to die on its own. It doesn't have to really be prompted much more. I think um, between the fact that the meat industry is going so well with chilled meat, the public pressure and um, discontent about the or disapproval about the live export trade is is growing globally. Um, is going to be a huge driver to whether anybody's going to invest the money to build a you know $200 million replacement ship for when the fuel standards change. Mm. So there'll still be some around for a while, but I'd imagine that they'll eke out their, their life and then disappear. So have you got any idea as to how long that might take? Five well, years, ten years? Well, there are some newer builds that are on the water now and – they may go for another 10, 15 years even, some of them. But the majority of the, the big carriers that we've got, I think I think we're going to lose. We've only got 140 live export ships in the entire world. Is that right? Out of an international shipping fleet of 105,000. 
So the number really is incredibly small. It is incredibly small, and they are the oldest seawater fleet in the world. So the average age of a ship that gets scrapped is 20 years. The average age of a live export ship out of that 140 is 35 years. So they're already nearly double their, their lifespan. So if they don't die out from uh, economic issues to do directly with the animals, they may just become too expensive to run their own equipment. Well, yeah, they could be too expensive to maintain. They could just literally fall apart, like um, unfortunately happened with a ship called the Danny F off... Um, the Danny F2 lost power in a storm off Lebanon in 2009, I believe, and, um, and she essentially split into two and sunk with the loss of 41 men, 18,000 cattle and 12,000 sheep. That's an extraordinary loss. But we didn't hear about that because they were from South America. Right. And that was a ship that had traded in Australia and was kicked out of Australia for safety reasons, and she was supposed to be – she was on her way for scrapping, and um, – some non-mental giant somewhere bought her for a really cheap price and, and kept trading her, thinking that they would trade her to the 11th hour. Mm. And in fact, they did. So at what rate are we building the ships? I think there's only about three builds on the go at the moment. So just looking at of, those... Of live export ships. Just looking at those numbers, roughly a hundred to 100,000. So when you consider the, the rate at which the ships are being built, you've got 140 live export ships versus roughly 100,000 ships right across the world... The rate of new builds is relatively small. The age of the That's ships... That's new builds of livestock ships. Yeah, new, new yep. builds of livestock ships. The age of those livestock ships is quite old comparative to the rest of the global fleet. I mean, just just on those numbers alone, you'd think that it'll just go away. Again, it'll just disappear. Well, there's growing environmental concerns about the, um, the disposal of bodies in different areas. And they've, um, the United Nations has clarified some of what they call special areas where you can't dump bodies into the water. So um, that includes the Persian Gulf and the Red Sea and I think the Mediterranean and the Black Sea, um, unless they've been ground up into tiny bits. But not every ship has one of those those grinders. And like I say, they're, they're horrible, especially to maintain and clean. Crew members have to actually crawl into them and clean these machines mm. that could, you know, spit them out like a wood chipper. And... Um, but the other thing that's really interesting is the United Nations and the shipping world in general are starting to become more aware of if it's this bad for the, the sheep, how bad is it for the crew? And should the maritime labour forces be allowing crew to be working under these conditions? So it may be that it's not um, taken out of the game by... Uh, economic or animal welfare grounds, it could actually be on seafarer welfare grounds. So there really are just a, a number of, uh, or a, it's a combination of related but separate factors, which are all just heading towards yep. a conclusion that says, look... It's a closing down yeah, cocktail. Yeah, 20 years from now, we're probably not going to be having this discussion. No. At least we'd like to think that. <laughs> we'll, we'll still have export of animals and... You know, to say ban live export is that's a real cup, it's a real catch all phrase because if you're right, we're to move to London next week and we want to take our pet dogs, that's live export. Yes. If, um, you know, people in Dubai want to bring horses to the Melbourne Cup in Australia in November, that's live export. You know, those, those things aren't going to be shut down. So that's, there will still be a live export component. Um, we live export things like, um, 
So, so there'll probably be a breeder trade continue for a, a little while because that'll be like a premium trade with whatever ships are left after the you know changes in 2020. And they will probably get priority because they'll be worth more money and um, more profitable for the exporters. But what will probably replace that is the exportation of um, semen straws and embryos. So we can harvest those here and send them over in aeroplanes in bottles of liquid nitrogen and then you don't have an animal welfare transport component. So that changes the game altogether. We're living in a more enlightened time and we can do different things now. We couldn't do um, straws of semen and you know flush out embryos in the past and, and transport them internationally. We can now. Um, we couldn't send chilled meat because there, there wasn't the facilities to send them by air or by sea and the recipients weren't going to necessarily have a decent, what we call a cold chain, so a, um, a series of refrigeration that was going to take it to the market and, and keep it there for a usable time frame. But we have all those things now. So back in the day, the trade had a place. It doesn't now. It's totally replaceable. Totally replaceable. As the wheels of my plane leave the runway, bound for home, I find myself contemplating those two words. I think we might have just found a new slogan. The concept of totally replaceable resonated strongly. It shifts the focus from taking sides in an argument to finding solutions and alternatives that produce improved outcomes for all stakeholders. After my discussions with Lynn and the other guests who generously donated their time to this podcast, I'm left with a sense of optimism. Things aren't going to change overnight. It will take some time for industries and government to adjust. But you can help too by talking about this with the people you know to raise awareness and to get the issue on the public agenda. It's time for the people to weigh in. I'd like to thank, in order of appearance, Mandy Peter, longtime friend of Lynn's, Dr. Anne Fawcett, veterinarian, lecturer, and diplomat, Dr. Bitter Jones, chief scientist for the RSPCA Australia, Grant Courtney, secretary of the Australasian Meatworkers Industry Employees Union, the Reverend Canon Gary Dodd, regional director of the Mission to Seafarers for Australia and Papua New Guinea, Dean Summers the International Transport Workers' Federation National Coordinator for the Flags of Convenience campaign in Australia. And of course, I'd like to thank Dr Lynn Simpson, who generously gave her time for these interviews. I'm Colin Klupik. Thanks for listening. Forty Seven Degrees is independently produced by Colink Media. Interviews, narration and production by Colin Klupik. Music licensed by Getty Images. To get in touch, send your emails to 47degrees at colinkmedia.com or visit facebook.com slash 47degreespodcast where you can post your thoughts and join the conversation.